You're listening to Don't IEP Alone with special education advocate Lisa Leitner. For more information about Lisa, the IEP toolkit, and more ways we can help you in your process, go to adayinourshoes.com. Now back to the show with your host, Lisa. Hi, good morning, and thank you everyone for tuning in. If you are watching, if you could just give us a like, say hi, and if you could tell us in the comments, tell us if you're a clinician, are you a parent, a teacher, some other type of professional, we'd love to know why you are here joining us today. With me today is Dr. Amy S.F. Lutz from, she's actually... I was just saying to her that I was surprised that our paths hadn't crossed yet. Our kids are near the same age, although hers is an adult, and I'm sure she'll tell you about him in a minute, but they both spend their days in Downingtown, it sounds like. My son spends his days in Downingtown, Pennsylvania, as does hers, and although at different different placements. Hers is in the adult programs already. Mine is still in school. Dr. Lutz is a professor at the University of Pennsylvania. And she is also a founding board member of the National Council on Severe Autism, which is a word that sometimes makes people uncomfortable when you say that word. But that's what we're here to talk about today. I actually purchased and am reading her book. This is it. And I will post a link to it in the, whoops, that's not it. I will post a link to it in the replays and in the comments if you want to purchase it. Her newest book is Chasing the Intact Mind, How the Severely Autistic and Intellectually Disabled Were Excluded from the Debates That Affect Them the Most. Okay, so before I start asking you some questions, Dr. Lutz, do you want to introduce yourself? Say hi. Sure. Hi. Yes, my name is Amy Lutz. I, it's always challenging when someone asks for the very brief description because I wear so many hats, but I am most importantly the parent of an almost 25-year-old severely autistic son named Jonah. And I have to say I'm having a massive nostalgia because I see watching one of Jonah's oldest oldest teachers from when he was about seven at Devereaux. So hi, Lori. You know, we haven't really connected for a long time, but Jonah's grown up a lot since, uh, since he was your student. I have five kids, actually. Joan is my oldest. And I've spent the last two decades trying to shine a light on what life at the severe end of the uh, the autism spectrum is like. So my original background is in writing. And so that's how I intervened in these conversations. So I've done a lot of advocacy and writing. This is my third book. And I've written for a ton of publications, including the Washington Post, the Atlantic, Slate, Psychology Today. And then I decided I was just so I really couldn't understand how we got to such a fraught place in the autism community where there was so much infighting and so much hostility. So I did what you know, what any curious adult would do. And I decided to go back and get a PhD and study it. So I went back to Penn, got a PhD in the history of medicine. And then I just ended up sliding into an open spot on my faculty. So that's what I do now. I teach at Penn and my research interest is on the history and ethics of autism and intellectual disability policy and practice. That's a mouthful. I'm always amazed. I only have one other child besides my disabled child. So when somebody has like three or four or five, like I'm just like my mind is kind of blown. I don't know how you all do it because I think sometimes I'm overwhelmed many days with just two. So your my son has a condition called DUPE15Q. It's a chromosome disorder. And with that comes a lot of stuff. Seizures are actually our biggest enemy each day. But he also has severe autism and intellectual disability. And he is now, we are now entering the realm of adult programs. And, you know, on this journey, you read and learn and listen. And I've been working as an IEP advocate now for almost 15 years. But now as I'm dipping my toe into the adult services and getting him on wait lists and all that fun stuff, I went to, I was invited to attend a lobbying day this summer, this past summer in Harrisburg. As I'm sure you're probably aware There was here in Pennsylvania, and this is only for Pennsylvania, there were some budget issues with budgeting for the funding for the people who take care of disabled adults, their direct service providers. There were some issues with that. And preparing for that day and then attending that day and talking with other parents and talking with other advocates was just such an eye-opening experience for me. On my Facebook page, I have been at the receiving end of a lot of criticism from autistic individuals. 
but I hadn't realized until this summer the actual damage that had been done as far as decreasing the amount of services and options and choices that my son is going to have as an adult. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, that's a huge focus of my advocacy. And that's kind of what the point of the book is about. So, and Pennsylvania is a great case study because we are one of the worst states in the country for options. We have regulations that are much more restrictive than required by the federal government about the types of service models that are available to our adult kids. So, for example, you're not allowed to build any residential setting larger than four people. There's a lot of, there's a constant effort to close down larger day programs, uh, 14C subminimum wage programs, anything that uh, neurodiversity and inclusion advocates have tagged as segregated or isolated. So the problem is, is that for a lot of our kids with significant behavioral challenges in particular, also maybe with medical challenges, that, you know, larger structured settings are are necessary and they're what our kids prefer. They're able to provide stability, predictability, safety. Also, they're able to support a whole range of different supports and amenities that our kids might like. And now increasingly, and especially in our state, but not just in our state, uh, those options are being defunded or closed based, you know, fueled by this vision, this fantasy of neurodiversity advocates that all any person with autism or any other kind of intellectual disability wants or needs is their own job, their own competitive minimum wage job, of course, and and their own apartment. And no matter how many times would the parents stand up and say, our kids can never do that, um, it's, as, it's, it's as if they're like, la, 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 I can't hear you. Or if they engage at all, it's to call us ableist martyr moms who are holding our kids back from the independent future they would all have if we weren't such helicopter parents. Yeah, I get that one a lot. Like, you can't call yourself an autism mom. You're centering yourself. It's not about yeah. you. It's and to that I often say, you know what? I call myself a basketball mom, too, but I couldn't play <laughs> basketball to save my life. Right. Um, it's just that was something that my other child does. It's just a part of it's such an integral part, I think, of who we are not not just the child, but of what we do each day. You know, we just had this family discussion last night that we have a family event coming up in in two weeks and it's going to be two, it's, and it's family, right? It's family, it's people that we love and we care about. And we haven't seen many of these people since before the pandemic. It's too many people. It's too loud. It's too noisy. It's too bright. It's different. It's just, it's, it's a house that he hasn't been to in four or five years. And it's a Christmas gathering that one parent is going to have to miss because because of autism, you know. We split up our family all the time. Now, we're really fortunate. We have a really robust support system. So besides Jonah goes to a great program in Downingtown, a great adult program, we have uh, several aides that are with him most of the time when he's home. And if we if we have a family event, we either host it, we have a big house and we always are the, the hosters for this reason so that Jonah can participate to the extent that he wants to. But if it's somewhere, somewhere else, either one of us stays back or we can, if we can schedule one of our aides to, to be with Jonah. But yeah, that's splitting up the family is... It's kind of routine, you know, just in a in a couple of weeks, my son's going to take three of my kids and a bunch of my my niece, my niece, my nephews, my cousins skiing in Maine for a week. And I'll be back with Jonah because, you know, Jonah doesn't ski. <laughs> but, uh, you know, so we try to make sure that our kids we've always tried to make sure that they have the same, you know, the opportunities to do what they want to do and that Jonah's disability doesn't foreclose any options for them, but it does involve a lot of logistical maneuvering. And I'm fully aware that most families do not have the support that we have in order to, you know, make all this possible. We had, my other son plays basketball and one of his leagues that he was doing a year or two ago in speaking with another mom after participating for several months, she actually thought that we were divorced um, because she never saw us together. And I said something about, oh, his dad. And she said, you know, and I don't know how it came up. And I said, oh, no, we're we're still together. And I explained, you know, we just have this other son and he can't come to, he can't come to games. He just, he just can't. So we split up. But but again, that's how significant it is, is that people think that we're not together, you know, (laughs) and we are. And that doesn't mean, and I, I think this is where I start to get angry like, oh, you're being ableist. Oh, you're not like 
I'm fully accepting of who he is, but who he is means one of us has to stay home. Um, I feel like it's the parents that we accept our our children how they are with their intellectual disabilities, with their challenging behaviors, with all the constraints on their lives that these things that these things cause. And we're very realistic about it, and we talk about it to to kind of counter this narrative that's being perpetuated by neurodiversity activists that our kids aren't really intellectually disabled. We just, you know, haven't found a way to communicate with them yet, or or we just don't understand them the way, you know, because we're not autistic. And I think that's so that in itself is the most ableist narrative of all in the autism community, that only those who can speak for themselves, the most privileged, the most capable, should control the discourse. I don't understand how it's not widely recognized that that is extraordinarily ableist and harmful to those who can't self-advocate. Yeah, I remember at a very young age, and I don't remember if it was, it was somewhere around, I want to say kindergarten through second grade, we actually took reading and writing off the IEP. Yeah. It just, he saw and still sees absolutely no point in even holding a crayon or a pencil, let alone bringing it to paper. Like he, it just, we couldn't make it happen. It just wasn't, you know, it just wasn't in the cards for him. And as a parent, when you say, wow, like my child is never going to read and write, that's huge and still accepting them as they are. But then that is so exclusionary because I look at these folks who are running, you know, sometimes their own online businesses and their own advocacy and their own public speaking business and writing books and lecturing. And I think it's so far removed from who my child is. Yeah. And sometimes it's not even the reading and writing. I mean, my son could read and write before he could talk. He was hyperlexic, which is one of the reasons why we actually really did believe that he had an intact, brilliant mind in there. But it turns out that, and he can still read and type, you know, he he can write, he can type, he can search for the Sesame Street videos he wants on YouTube on his own, which is great because that gives him some freedom to basically choose his own programming. He doesn't have to constantly ask or hope that someone can divine what he wants to watch. You know, like I can't imagine how difficult that must be, but he's able to communicate. His communication is, and he can also speak, you know, he actually has um, functional verbal language. You know, he's, it's very impoverished though, but point is, it's not the problem that he, he can't communicate. The problem is that what he communicates is, is very, it's just about what's happening now in the immediate present. He doesn't have any abstract concepts, so he can't ask any or answer any questions about how or why. He just, his view of the world is very confined to like home and maybe Costco and school, and he has no idea about the wider world and can't possibly process it. So it's it's not even about the communication for him. It's about an impoverished, you know, kind of intellect. You know, he just doesn't have any abstract concepts. I can't even imagine what his inner life is like. Yeah. And I've had now way back in the day when, when I had Kevin and he was first receiving his diagnoses is when that's when the whole vaccine thing was happening, you know, and there was that whole piece of it. Now, more recently, I've had a lot of people send me and I know I, right. They're well-intended, right? They're well-intended, but sending me these videos of this facilitated communication. Like the only problem is that I just don't know how to reach him, right? If only I did this, if only you tried this, if he he could actually, hey, if you try this, maybe Kevin can spell. And I'm like, "Mm, I don't think he can. And I actually did not have the resurgence of facilitated communication on my bingo card. I followed this debate since the 1990s you know, FC, that's when FC kind of exploded in the United States for the first time. And it only took a few years before repeated control testing revealed that that the disabled person was not controlling the output in FC, but it was the facilitator doing it unconsciously, you know, kind of the way somebody might control the movement of a Ouija board planchette. And this has been an extremely robust finding. In other words, like these control tests would find zero independent communication. And just it was once you controlled for facilitator knowledge, in other words, all you have to do, it's very easy to test, is ask a disabled person to produce through FC or its modern variants, the rapid prompting method and spelling to communicate. 
you have to add, just ask them to produce information that is unknown to the facilitator. And if they can't do that, then it's because the facilitator is controlling the output. And now, yeah, and I live on the main line and there's a very kind of active spelling to communicate group out there. My kid's school district, Lower Marion, has been fighting off a lawsuit to by a family who wants the district to provide spelling to communicate in the district. And that I encourage anybody who's considering this to, to read the findings from that lawsuit. The, the courts keep finding for the, uh, the school district, the family keeps appealing. But I think what's really illustrative is that the district went into it, I think, with like, sure, let's see what's happening here. You know, they didn't say we have you know, overwhelming evidence in the science, in this, in the literature that this is not real. They said, let's see what it looks like for this kid, which is all a parent could ask for. And as detailed in the findings, which are a matter of public record, so anybody can read them. Basically, the kid was asked to complete an assignment, a history, I believe, assignment or an assessment in a class that he had been mainstreamed in with his facilitator. And he was unable to do it until the facilitator was given the answer key which as far as I'm concerned should have, as a parent, I would have been appalled and just, you know, but no, they just come up with some kind of justification and persist in trying to fight for it. It's, yeah. it's very tragic. It is. It, it reminds me of when, when Kevin first started developing seizures, <laughs> everywhere we went, people gave us the, have you tried cannabis <laughs> thing? And I, and it's the same thing where I'm I'm in the camp who believes that it was legalized due to public pressure, not due to overwhelming evidence that it helps seizures. And yeah. but it doesn't make for a good news story, right? What makes for a good news story is this child suffering, but then all of a sudden they found this this miracle, whatever. Yeah. But that's not for the most part what the data says. So I've been doing this, you know, it's 10 or 12 years. So I was around and engaged in this community when we had the last DSM update. For those of you who are newer to this, the DSM, if you're unaware, is the book of codes, essentially. If you want insurance to pay for something, it's got to have a code. And the codes are in the DSM, which is revised every decade plus. And in the last revision, which was it 2013 or 2015? 2013. Was it 2013? 2013, the DSM did away with PDD and OS, and it did away with Asperger's. Mm -hmm. And it put, it just just said, okay, autism. This is it, autism. Do you think in hindsight now with 10 years of perspective, do you think that is part of the problem? Or do you think that is where it started? Or do you think we would have kind of maybe ended up here anyway? Well, I think two things are true. We might have ended up here anyway, but definitely that was that was a huge problem. I think very quickly it a lot of stakeholders including parents of more severely affected kids, clinicians, researchers realized that this was a big mistake because imagine being a researcher and you're like I want to do a study on kind of social communication in autistic kids, you know, like but what does that mean autistic kids now? Now, the DSM does have severity levels that they proposed be attached to the diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder, but unfortunately, no one uses them. They haven't been picked up. They're not meaningful. So if you want to do a search, like in the literature, say you're a grad student, say you're a clinician, then you want to search for, I don't know, you know, pointing in autistic kids or eye contact in autistic kids or whatever, you, it's very hard to, to do a search, find scholarship that, you know, studies that are actually targeted at the population that you're interested in, because the umbrella has become so broad as to be essentially meaningless. And so that's on a like kind of a pure like medical level. But on a political level, what's happened is you have very mildly affected autistic adults, autistic self-advocates who are claiming that they can speak for kids like mine and yours because they share this diagnosis you know, of autism. And because we, the parents, don't, we can't possibly know what's best for our kids, even though we've been caring for them you know, and loving them their whole lives. So that's a problem. I do believe that we're moving back towards splitting up the spectrum. You know, a, a couple of years ago, the Lancet Commission proposed the introduction of a new term, profound autism, which could be used to describe autistic 
people who have an IQ below 50, who have minimal language and who require around the clock supervision, that's their criteria. Right now, that's not an official diagnostic term because in order for that to happen, either the American Psychiatric Association who puts out the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, or the WHO, who puts out the ICD codes, which is just a similar, just more global kind of set of diagnostic codes. One of those organizations or both would have to adopt profound autism. Neither has done that yet. But I will say there has been significant uptake and embrace of the term profound autism. The CDC just released prevalence figures on pro specifically on profound autism as defined by the Lancet Commission, which, and no one's ever accused the CDC of being like out there on the edge, you know, so, you know, kind of leading the pack. So the fact the CDC is using this term says it's, it has, you know, wide, wide uptake in the, in the kind of the professions, you know, the research and clinical providers there. So, and it's, it's, this is not a fringe part of the spectrum, right? So, 27% of, of autistic eight-year-olds meet the criteria for profound autism, according to the CDC. So that's like, we're basically talking about close to a third of autistic people meeting the criteria for profound autism. That is so scary about how the, you know, how we're going to support these very disabled individuals over the course of a lifetime. Yeah, it is. It is. And do you think that is, oh, and by the way, um, for those of you tuning in, we are taking questions. So if you want to type a question in the comment, please feel free to do so. But do you think that is what's going to have to take to kind of create this shift is, is changing something like the DSM and coming up with that? I mean, you not know, that I'm expecting to be a cure-all, but is it, a, yeah. is it a good starting point? I think that's definitely, that will be helpful when we can just uh, clearly discriminate between the, the qualitative needs of someone with a kind of milder form of autism and then the people who are going to require intensive, specialized, round-the-clock care their whole lives. I think what really has to happen, though, is that our policymakers need to meet with profoundly affected individuals with significant cognitive impairments, whether it's due to autism or due to a genetic syndrome or whatever, and talk to their families and, and just kind of appreciate the very tough challenges that they face and the very, the qualitatively different supports that they need and understand that a one size fits all model that's determined by those who would never qualify for waivers in the first place because they they graduated from college, they're married, maybe they maybe they have jobs. Like those, those disabled advocates should not be calling the shots for those who are, are very much more impaired. I think yeah. that's what needs to happen in order for things to change. Yeah, I am, um, as you, we've been around long enough to have to watch the argument from people first language to identity first language and back again, you know, that seems to kind of cycle out. And I still actually get emails from people who say, oh, you don't, you don't use people first language, please, please use people first language in your writing. And I don't, but I think it, it's, it's striking to me that those who advocate for identity first language, calling themselves autistics, you know, mm -hmm. I'm an autistic person, I'm an autistic man, autistic woman, are the same people, you know, and they say the reason, and I'm just saying this not for your benefit for those watching, the argument being that when you when you say person with autism, it inherently implies that you're trying to kind of hide the word autism and that and by trying to hide the word, that inherently makes it negative and that being autistic is not a negative thing. It's not anything that they're ashamed of. It's part of who they are. So, you know, they're going to say it loud and proud. I'm autistic. Those same folks will tell me that I cannot say low functioning. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I, and I have, I shy away from the term and, and I shy away from severe autism most days just because I'm not in the mood to deal with it. I'm not, I'm not in the mood to deal with the pushback because I have enough going on in my life without fighting off people online. But by hiding the word low functioning, aren't we inherently hiding low functioning individuals? Yeah, right? it's really trying to sanitize autism of, you know, of the people who are most impaired by it. And that's just part of an overall kind of Senate, you know, whitewashing that I see, you know, and we have the, the public perception of autism is really kind of um, best illustrated by someone like the good doctor, you know, this kind of quirky genius model of autism. And if you stand up and say, my kid is low functioning, you get attacked for saying low functioning instead of saying, 
it's really acknowledging that it's really important that we foreground those most impaired by autism in conversations about autism, right? So, and low functioning, lots of people have issues with this term. The problem is I haven't heard any term that's better. You know, a lot of, a lot of autistic advocates like high support needs as a better term, but to me, that's very misleading because you know, Stephen Hawking had high support needs. Christopher Reeve had high support needs, but they were, they did have intact minds and um, they could advocate for themselves. And, you know, but that doesn't, high support needs doesn't get at the profound cognitive impairments that really are significant driver behind our kids' disabilities. Yeah. Until somebody gets me a better one, I'm going to use low functioning. Yeah. And I, I think that I don't know. I don't know if, do you think that some folks are just in denial that it even exists or because they don't walk in our shoes that they just can't even see it? Like I just, if any, I, th I feel like if anyone ever saw how much we're worried about safety, like yeah. on a day to day, like my son has no perception whatsoever of what is safe behavior and what is unsafe behavior. And he has a lot of seizures and he would have no qualms about standing at the top of a set of concrete steps, right? not yeah. realizing like, oh, hey, I have seizures. Maybe I, I shouldn't stand here or, you know, near something out. You know, that's what we're mostly worried about all the time is that when he's walking around our own house and that and that's how significant it is for us is that we have to stress out even about him walking around his own house safely. And do you think it's just that they don't see it so they can't even envision it or it's, is, it a, is it they see it and they want to deny it because they don't want it to be attached to them? I think, well, I don't think it's the last thing. What I do think is part of it is I do think that if you haven't spent any time with someone with severe profound autism, then it's really hard to imagine it in your head because, I mean, imagining someone hitting themselves in the face until they detach their own retinas or launching themselves at their caregivers and trying to pull their hair out, like that's just not something that if you haven't seen it, that you can imagine. I think that's a problem why, specifically with policymakers who just can't process. And then they, they just seem so far into what they've ever seen that it's easier to say the parents are exaggerating or, you know, just trying to, you know, exaggerating for effect or something. So I think that's part of it. And I do think that's why it's super important for us to bring our kids to meet with our legislators if po at all possible. And if they have a meltdown in the state rep's office, good. You know, like then maybe the state rep will understand what's at stake in these highly restrictive regulations that we have. So I think that's really important. When Jonah needed a waiver, I just brought him to our, our state rep's office and was like, look, this is my son. He is going to need intensive round-the-clock care his whole life. And he got it, you know, seeing him. So I think that's part of it. But I also do think there's political kind of piece where autistic self-advocates, you know, the larger disability rights community really want to control the narrative. And uh, they and our kids threaten the fantasy that that all that, you know, that the social model of disability, which says that people aren't really dis aren't really you know impaired. It's more like a mismatch between a person and and the environment, which makes sense when you talk about physical disabilities, right? So the social model of disability really aptly applies to, say, someone in a wheelchair who is obviously way more disabled in a town with no curb cuts and ramps and elevators than they would be in a town that had those things, right? So then you can say, that makes sense. But the social model of disability really falls apart in cases of really profound cognitive impairment, but no one is the disability rights side is willing to acknowledge that. So since it, it really challenges their framework, the kind of the reaction is to just like suppress, deny, and just make up stuff about our kids that they could really do these things. And if you just put a letter board in front of them, or if you just, you know, if you knew them, when you understood them, then, you know, you would have a much different outcome. So Tina brings up a good point, and I think a lot of parents feel this way. And she says, I feel like if I say that, and assuming she's talking about using like low-functioning terms, yeah. um, teachers will forget he's a person too. And then she put in another comment and then treat him as subhuman. I get that. I totally understand that. I feel like, for, I mean, my son's behavior has been medically stabilized for the most part, not 100%, but way better just since he's like 11 now and he's almost 25. So it's been a long time. But he was so aggressive. He had to be hospitalized for almost a year at Kennedy Krieger when he was nine. So we dealt with a lot of challenging behavior. And I totally understand 
that, and, and like, I have a lot of great friends in, you know, where I live in, in the mainline area. And I would never talk about these things with them because you feel protective over your kid, right? Like you just, you, you know, he seems odd enough when they're at your house or whatever. You don't want them to think worse or want him to think of him as an animal or something. So I do think I get that completely. And I do think that is kind of an intervention we need to make. It's just like that we can celebrate the value and humanity and awesomeness of our kids without denying their extreme behavioral, cognitive, medical challenges. Like just because somebody has an IQ of 40, as my son does, doesn't exclude him from the human race. It definitely shouldn't. But maybe what's truly dehumanizing is pretending, you know, is, is just refusing to see and support those challenges. And I would at least hope that the teachers who are who are called to work with our kids totally understand that and just want to support them. And as I said, when we first started, that one of Jonah's first early teachers is here on this call or was and like, and she was awesome and so warm and loving. And I just would hope that most of the teachers who end up who choose to work with our very profoundly impaired kids feel similarly and and would and appreciate, you know, true, you know, honesty and collaboration from the parents. I understand that's not always the case. And sometimes people who are not called to work with our kids end up assigned to that. And that can be a disaster. Yeah. So speaking on the social model of, of disability or autism, you know, I had some, my son's hyper interest is also Sesame Street. <laughs> Another coincidence. He just, he loves the characters. I've never been able to talk him out of it. So we just kind of roll with it. And we've been going to, and we've been season pass holders for, at Sesame Place, like, for, you know, forever since he's one or two years old. This past summer, it, I kind of had this, this awakening after not having been there since the pandemic. We didn't go. Kevin has a lot of health issues, so we had to extra protect him and, and from the pandemic. And we joined society, rejoined society much later than many other families. And going to amusement parks wasn't wasn't a risk we could take. So we just started going this past summer and it kind of like dawned on me not having been there for two or three years that, you know, Sesame Place prides itself. And I've been a huge champion of them for many years on being like they were they got this autism certification, right? We're this autism friendly place and we have all these things. And so then meanwhile, I'm trying to use their quiet space because my son is tube fed and like the wheelchair doesn't fit and I can't tube feed him. And it kind of feels like everybody likes these little eight-year-old autistic kids with quirky interests. Yeah. But when they're older and have facial hair and are 120 or more pounds, it's just not so cute anymore. Do you yeah, think it's that hard. I mean, that's what something we say, autistic kids become autistic adults. And it's really hard because, you know, there's, there's, there's just very low level of kind of aggressive behavior that can be tolerated in someone the size of an, my son is six feet tall and almost 200 pounds. And if he, you know, if he were having a meltdown, that would be, that'd be uh, someone could easily call the cops, you know, and there've been many examples of that happening. And especially parents of color are terrified that their kids are going to be shot engaging in these kind of behaviors. So yeah, we have a long way to go before, you know, before our kids, kids, you know, kind of people, we can move freely in society with our kids. Okay. So Angela, she obviously has been tuned in since the beginning because she heard me mention the national or the, uh, is it, it's National Council on Severe Autism, correct? Yeah. You want to talk a little bit about that? Question. Yeah. And what yeah. parents can do and, and what, what, tell us what it does, first of all. Yeah. So the National Council on Severe Autism, that I am the vice president of it. It was started by Jill Escher, who's out in the Bay Area, I want to say like four years ago. I'm not exactly sure. And we are, we don't have a brick and mortar location. We are really kind of an advocacy group and we run a website that has a ton of resources on it. We have position statements. We have a blog that we welcome, you know, parents and clinicians to contribute to. We have a Facebook page where people can connect and talk. We have a grassroots network, which is the goal is to build a really robust network in every state so that when there are state level policies or bills that have been proposed that affect people in a particular state, we can easily get information to the, the parents in that state and mobilize whatever letter writing, you know, visit your, reach out to your state rep, et cetera. 
And I really encourage everybody who either, who is touched by severe autism, either because they're a parent, they're a clinician, they're a friend, to go to the NCSA website, which is ncsautism.org. So the A does kind of double duty there, ncsautism.org. And sign up. First of all, you can just check out the website. You don't have to sign up, but I really encourage you to sign up. It doesn't, we don't do anything with the mailing list. It's for our own purposes. You will get a newsletter every couple of months just explaining, you know, kind of summarizing what we've been up to. But the reason why it's so important is because our, our number one goal is to have a seat at the table. We want a representative from NCSA on the Interagency Autism Coordinating Committee, maybe on the National Disability Council. You know, we want to be consulted when policies are, are being debated that affect our population. Right now, the Department of, La of Labor has announced a comprehensive review of 14C, the subminimum wage. We want to be consulted to say, how might this affect more severely impaired individuals who actually are the consumers of 14C services? So the bigger wait list we can, not wait list, the bigger kind of like database we can show that we have, you know, 10,000 followers or we have 100,000 followers, you know, like that all matters in getting policymakers to listen to us. So I really encourage you to just kind of sign up. Great. And I, um, with that, I'm going to bring up Judy's question about supported living apartment complexes for autistic adults. And this is where, and maybe I should have gone into more detail in the beginning, this was like the huge eye-opening piece of this for me, because I remember back in the day, there was this farm near me with disabled adults in a, in a farm setting. And I forget how many, you know, they had all this stuff. But at the time, Kevin was, I don't know, maybe he was in preschool. And I was like, oh, that's kind of good to know. I'll worry about that in 20 or 25 years. Now those places are gone. And this is what people need to understand is that the self-advocacy community in advocating for themselves, they have created, I'm, I'm looking, I'm, I'm trying to get at that four-person rule. That it's now, not, in this case, it's not the four-person rule, but we also have a density restriction in Pennsylvania. So you're not allowed to have an apartment complex or building that has larger than 25% waiver recipients in it. So no, there's no full supported living apartment complexes allowed in Pennsylvania, even if you're not on the waiver, like they won't like license it or they, they try to shut it down as much as possible, which is crazy because I just want you to imagine if I suggested that we pass a regulation that said only 25% of Black people can live in this apartment building or 25% Jews, you know, like that you can never get away with that. And yet the only other population, you know, that isn't free to live and work and recreate with and wherever they choose is registered, you know, convicted sex offenders. It's just so offensive and disgusting. And it obviously a complete civil rights violation. And someday someone with a ton of resources and time is going to, you know, bring that suit. And then hopefully that'll crack this wide open. But it's such a huge endeavor that, you know, that's going to be what's required, I think. Right. And, and to be clear, so that I don't get more vitriol on my page. I am not at all ever in favor of someone being institutionalized when they have the ability to live independently or supported. In, and that's kind of where we were, right? We were just institutionalizing everybody. And that did have to change. But we've gone now to a point where you can't have more than four or 25, depending on the setting, anywhere in the state. Right. So, in, and that's what I think people don't understand is that in advocating for the dissolution of institutions, the severe population has nowhere to go. And some stories that I heard that, again, I want to share, not for you, because I'm sure you've heard them all, um, but for the audience is that, you know, I, I do have another friend in Chester County whose child was living in a, in a congregate setting and enjoyed it very much. It was a a more supported community, but she still had her own room, but it had more of like a campus feel to it. So she could walk from room to room and socialize with friends and they had social activities and common areas and, and games and, and TV and movies and, and ice cream parties and all those things. She was basically kind of like living in a dorm, but not going to college, yeah. just doing, doing other things. Now that has had, it's been forced to close. And so since it's been forced to close, she is at home and she has a, she has round the clock 
care, which by the way is, I can't even tell you how much more expensive it is <laughs> to do it this way. Yeah. So even to, even speaking from practical standpoints, it is infinitely more expensive for her to have a one-on-one round the clock than to live in a yeah. campus type setting. But this, these one-to-ones come to her home and she said, okay, so now she goes to Legoland once a week in Plymouth meeting. Yeah. Yeah. And what 30 year old woman wants to go to Legoland once a week. Right. But there's yeah, nothing I else mean, to do. Yeah. It's just, look, nobody should be forced into a congregate setting, a 14 C program, but nobody should be forced out of it either. I've just have always been a big advocate for a wide range of service models to reflect a very diverse population. Right. I mean, like, and it's crazy that I'm in, in Pennsylvania, we have to have this conversation, especially because we have an amazing farm community that is active, which is at Camp Hill. If you haven't been there, you should definitely check it out. It's the most beautiful cult you've ever seen. People come from all over the world to, to life share there. Camp Hill is like an international movement, comes out of the same philosophical movement as like the Waldorf schools. It's called the anthroposophy movement. But And they just are a big believer in like whole, you know organic food and art and music and they, they weave there they play harps there it's to call an institution is beggars the mind but they're you know you are not allowed to use your waiver to live at camp hill because it's it's you know even though it's beautiful i would love nothing more than my for my son to be someplace like camp hill spending a lot of time outside you know helping to care of animals and then having all these people who are committed to working with this population and kind of living these life values now the you know camp hill doesn't have any it's it's self pay it's private pay it's, and, and it's 55,000 dollars a year and they don't take, you know, people with really severe, challenging behavior. So my, it's not appropriate for my son, but I would love a model like that. And the fact is that Pennsylvania, you know, state reps have been there. They agree it's beautiful. They agree it's, you know, not fair that, you know, that we can't build something like that. But nothing ever changes because, honestly, ODP is such a stranglehold on on the policies and nobody is willing to kind of take that on. Yeah. So when she's talking about the outing, so another question about the outing. So let me just give another example before Dr. Amy answers the question. Um, One, another story I heard from a parent there has a young man, adult child, was in a group living setting, got sent home because it closed. And yes, they do have group outings. But this particular child in his mid-20s hated it so much like he didn't like doing that and we know that a lot of these kids don't you know they like what they like they don't deal well well with change and transition and routines and so on one such outing where they were going to take them to walk around the mall he kicked out the van window because he was upset he didn't want to go and in kicking out the van window he got himself removed from the program so now he's got nothing yeah i mean that's i mean yeah that's a story that i hear a lot that that programs are not taking adults with challenging behaviors because it makes it difficult. But to Judith's question, Judith question, I know this is totally crazy. So the rule about being out in the community, three to one is actually the, the ratio that's allowed. And it's so stringently enforced that, and I swear I'm not making this up, if like uh, if, if I am a DSP with three disabled adults and I go into like a Dunkin' Donuts and where having a snack in there and Lisa walks in as a DSP with her three disabled adults, one of us has to leave. We actually can't both be in the same Dunkin' Donuts at the same time. I've also heard it like uh, at like at the Kinney Center one year, which has actually had to drastically reduce the number of adults they support because of these crazy regulations that a parent who wanted her son to have a birthday party with all of his peers at the Kinney Center had to like ask for a, an exemption to this rule that require that only three people, three disabled people are allowed to be together in one place or it becomes magically an institution. I mean, so these, these rules are unbelievable. And instead of, you know, fostering actual like community integration, what you have is like what Lisa just described, you know, they go to the mall, fabulous. In fact, they don't just go to the mall that's nearby, that takes that takes too little time. So you have these DSPs putting disabled adults 
three disabled adults in a van driving two hours to the mall, like four towns over, because that at least takes up the day. Then they walk around, don't buy anything, don't talk to anybody. And then they turn around and go home. And that is okay by ODP standards. That is what they want to see. That's community integration somehow. But at Camp Hill, where everyone's like contributing meaningfully to a project, who is engaging in all kinds of fun activities with disabled peers, with non-disabled helpers, like that's an institution. It's just the 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 kind of the difference between the discourse and the reality is so profound, it's mind-boggling. Yeah. And that's and that's where I start to get angry that I don't understand how we got to where advocating for someone's rights took away yeah. my child's choices. And yes, absolutely. So what do you think we can do to heal and move forward? I guess I just really think the only thing to do is just make sure our kids are really visible. And, you know, there's nothing you can do about talking to the neurodiversity, you know, ideologues. This don't even waste your breath responding to them because like any kind of committed ideologues, they're they're all in, you know, and they don't want to hear it and they're not going to listen. You're just going to be inviting more attacks. But the people we really need to be talking to are the, the the legislators, the state and federal legislators, the disability administrators, the people who have the ability to change the rules and just make sure our kids are really visible to them. You know, there was a crazy story that happened. Uh, I wrote about this for the Philadelphia Citizen that really, to me, exemplifies the insanity at the heart of Pennsylvania disability policy, which is... I have, I know somebody who has identical twin autistic sons who are close to 30. They have extraordinarily aggressive behavior. They were both in, they, you know, they cycled through several group home providers. And by group home, I mean a home that's just for the two of them with like multiple staff to try to keep everybody safe and, you know, with like a revolving door to the emergency room. When they, when they got too aggressive, they would have to just call 911 and they'd get like shot up and hauled all and and discharged back to the group home until one the group home provider said, can't do this anymore. And then they ended up getting, with the help of a national advocacy group called Together for Choice, they managed to convince ODP that the these young men should be placed at Woods, uh, you know, a congregate facility in the not far from Sesame Place. And they are doing so much better, you know, in that kind of large structured environment, their, their, their behavior has improved, the medication they're on has dropped. And as soon as they stabilized, ODP was like, great, now we can move you out into another, into a group home and start this all over again. And let me just add that Woods, when they were in the group home, just the two of them, the budget was over a million dollars a year, over a million dollars a year for the two of them. Woods charges less than half that to, to provide care for these young men these still who still have very significant challenges. So ODP is willing to burn half a million dollars a year while, you know, close to 20,000, I think, Pennsylvanians are waiting lists for services or have waivers and can't access any services because their kids are too, have too many challenges, you know, rather than see these and allow these young men to stay in a placement that, that their family wants them, that they're doing well at, that their doctors think is appropriate. So, like, this needs to change. And some, we need to make sure that, that the severely affected are foregrounded in any policy debate about, you know, that affects them. And what that means is making sure the parents get a seat at the table. Melissa has a question and I know she lives near us. Are there exceptions to where this, that rule is applied? And she said, I asked because Devereaux sets up community outings for intellectually disabled adults. And I'm sure it's more than four people. I mean, I don't know of any exceptions. This is just the the regulations as I understand them to be. It's possible that some like older providers like Devereaux are grandfathered in for certain things, or maybe they have, maybe they have two staff people for three, you know, for six adults. And if it's from, the, I, I don't know, I haven't heard that, but like, it's, I, I can't say I have truly in-depth knowledge of, of the regulations and how stringently they're applied. Yeah. So I've been very active in lobbying and advocacy and in particular visiting my legislators. And several years ago, if you remember, there was this whole push to abolish Obamacare, ACA, mm -hmm. and with it would go away all these Medicaid provisions. And for all of its faults, one of the good things in Pennsylvania is that all disabled children qualify for Medicaid. And it's a it's something that my family relies upon. And so I was asked to kind of be 
a voice and a face for this. And I always take heaven with me when I, when I can. And I remembered in meeting, we actually met with our congressman at the time. It was Lloyd Smucker. He's not our, our congressman anymore. But I took him and I remember several times throughout the conversation, Kevin actually had a seizure and his head was like falling forward. And, and I'm like, well, this is it. Like, this is, I mean, this is our life. Like we can't get through a day without numerous seizures. But he said something, the congressman said something at the end. And he said, and I don't remember his exact words because it's been a few years. He said something like, people like Kevin will never have to worry about accessing services. Huh. Like, like yeah. kind of recognizing that, okay, this kid is a little bit more the disabled than within what we usually see. And, but, he, but I remember that he said, kids like Kevin will never have to worry about accessing services and supports. I mean, I wish that were, I mean, maybe that used to be true. <laughs> I will tell you that the story I used to hear in Pennsylvania a lot from parents was, we need the waiver. Once we get the waiver, we'll be okay. We're on the waiting list for the waiver. Now we have the small waiver where, you know, my sports coordinator says for sure we'll get the big waiver in the next couple of years. <laughs> now the story I hear all the time is we have a waiver and nobody will take my kid, you know, because of all these restrictions, all this like, you know, emphasis on serving people in the community on um, these small settings that that providers can't afford to take on kids who are going to kick out the windshield of the van, right? So then you have the most the parents having to care for at home kids with the most significant disabilities and wondering what the heck is going to happen when I can't do this anymore. So I no longer think that's true. I actually think the kind of regulatory kind of landscape has created a system that really dramatically incentivizes providers to cherry pick the most capable clients, the ones who are the most compliant, that have the fewest behavioral challenges and can easily go out into the community and go to an animal shelter and pet cats, you know, and the ones who require more intensive care, they just don't fit into this model. Yeah. And then what another thing parents don't realize is that even, okay, you get the waiver and they're like, yeah, I got the waiver. You can't find services if you don't use your waiver, it gets taken away. Oh, yeah, it's just crazy. So, okay, so we are wrapping up on an hour, and I greatly appreciate you being with us here this morning. I'm going to share the link to the book again. Or do you have any final thoughts? Or uh, no, I just thank, parting, you, parting thank words? you so much for, for having me. It's great to talk to people. And, uh, you know, I am on Facebook at Amy Fisher Lutz, and I'm always happy to connect with other families, other other parents. And, you know, the only way we're going to get through this is to do it together. So yeah. I'm always happy to build networks. Definitely read it. I'm about halfway through. It's called Chasing the Intact Mind. The Amazon link is there. It's very insightful. It's also you know, sometimes I like to read books just because they're validating, like, you, you know, because we, it's a very isolating, isolated existence at times. And just to know, like, okay, these thoughts that are rolling around in my head, I'm not the only person thinking them. Other families have this as well. Okay. Well, thank you so much for being here and have a great rest of your day, everyone. Thank you for listening to Don't IEP Alone with special education advocate, Lisa Leitner. We're so glad you've joined us and would love to connect with you outside of the show. For more information about Lisa, the IEP toolkit, and more ways we can help you in your process, go to adayinourshoes.com. From self-care tips to common IEP mistakes, there's even more to explore. Don't forget to rate and review the podcast and subscribe to never miss an episode. Until next time, don't IEP alone and you don't have to.